All right, welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, I had this wonderful opportunity today as being part of the local county, Loudoun County School Board. Uh, we have this high school. <clears throat> it's called the uh, Douglas High School. And um, it's, I mean, in one sense, today was a day of of uh, joy and a day of, of remembrance. But it's kind of a sad story because, uh, as you know, for schools used to be segregated and Loudoun County was no different. And um Basically, local African-American families banded together and they raised uh, $4,000 through bake sales, through promissory notes, you know, really literally scraping uh, to get what they could for their children in order to buy a piece of land so that the Loudoun County School Board at the time um, could could basically, it was purchased for a dollar and sort of the way that works in municipalities, you can't really give something to a municipality, so you sort of like, you sell it to them for a dollar, so the narrative right now, and I, I know it's it's reasonable, is that it was sold to the Loudoun County School Board for a dollar, and in Loudoun, the Loudoun County School Board um, built a school for them. It didn't furnish it, didn't provide the teachers, and so these families had to, to, to make do and scrape by again in order to, to provide an education for their children, but the, this school existed from 1941 to 1968. It's the Douglas School in, in Lees, uh, uh and now today was the ceremony where they basically um, it needed a lot of work. So they, it was renovated, redone in order to bring it back to its older characteristics in order to make it look like how it did at the time. So we could really celebrate and remember the fact that education is incredibly important. The fact that uh, we lived in these terrible times where schools were segregated just by the color of your skin. Um, and we're trying to to move past that. So it was a really wonderful ceremony. I was, um, you know, I was moved by the the songs, the speeches and stuff. The great great grandson of Frederick Douglass was there to speak about the importance of education, and that was great for me because I'm a big fan of Frederick Douglass. Um, he's got, there's this book, The Columbian Orator, that he read that was introduced. Um, the kind of everyone read at the time, but you know him being in a situation where he wasn't uh, formally educated, where everyone was against him, it was kind of um, uh, you know he wouldn't have gotten this in school. This um, this book, The The Columbian Orator orator uh it's got speeches about the american revolution i was just reading a speech to katie today about from george washington to the first joint session of congress written by our friend james madison uh so excerpts from that you know um so it's just a powerful reminder that education is incredibly important that we all have a duty to educate ourselves there was this one line from it that i loved uh he goes on he talked uh frederick Douglass's great 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 grandson um what talks about how the fact that he homeschools his children and one of the challenges of that is that you really have to be involved in all your children's education and then he said but if you send your kids to a public school there's still no excuse you still have to be uh involved in your children's education and i quickly typed that on my phone because that's so <laughs> important so you know um you know you've got to be involved with your kids from the day no matter if you're homeschooling if you send them to a private school if you send them to a public school you have to be involved. Um, the other thing that I love about Frederick Douglass, you know, he's self-taught and I think that's, and it, it was self-taught the reading, something that we espouse so much in the Madison Republicans where, you know, Jeff, you've got the whole sack of books behind you. I've got this, uh, this library behind me, you know, like reading is incredibly important. And the fact that what you read can help guide you, the fact that books are a means to teach you has got me thinking a lot. And um, I don't know if you know this, but Loudoun County is in the middle of this, uh, Superintendent search. We're trying to find someone. Um, going through the interviews and process and stuff. I think we'll we'll get someone out of this. Um, but I've been kind of been thinking about like, you know, going through the process, uh, thinking about AI and all the technology and stuff. Like, what do we really? What's the goal of education, Jeff? Like, what would you say is the goal of teaching a child? Is it to create a PowerPoint that they can then present on a, t a flat screen TV that someone else wrote the content for that they're just uh, copying off Wikipedia, or is it to really have ideas that they can try to communicate and sell someone, regardless of the medium? If that's a podcast, if that's a PowerPoint presentation, like what would you say the the purpose of education is? Well, I think you divide it up between different uh, age groups. So if you put the elementary age group together, I would say the purpose of education is lay the foundation for communication. Um, they need time 
to discover themselves as far as like play and outside and socialization. They need time to read. Um, you know, they need to be read to and they need to be listened to while they're reading. I think this is something the education system neglects is each child needs the opportunity to read out loud regularly. Um, I would say maybe an hour per day, um, you know, or, or 30 minutes, depending on the age, and then it would grow up. Uh, you know, as they go through school and then basic arithmetic, um, you know, deeper math, like uh, algebra and geometry can be learned, but it can be learned easier if you have a basic foundation in arithmetic, uh, subtraction and division. And a lot of times we spend time in elementary school focusing on fractions and decimals and all these things when the kids haven't actually learned the basics of arithmetic. So making Absolutely. sure that you pare down that and basically you build a foundation for education in the elementary level. Once you get to the middle school level, my recommendation is now you open up to a different, more critical thinking. So I think uh, you allow the kids to study or you teach the kids philosophy, uh, theology. Um, you know, I know that there's a separation of church and state in our country, but I don't think that it should be that way. I think we should be, the education system should be open to all different ideas and inter, um, ideas. And so you teach this, this is where you get a baseline for morals and thinking, um, the ability to, you know, uh, think through an idea as opposed to just speak at the idea. Um, you open up some science and some history uh, lay the foundation for knowledge for the child. Uh, basically, during this time period is you want to teach them the ability to both critically think and search and find their information. So basic technology classes like Google researches, um, even potentially training on, on AI as we grow into the future will be important. So students understand the technology they're going to be working with. Um, when you get to that next level, which would be high school. Now at the high school level, if you have a proper foundation and you learn how to uh, critically think and search for information, now you can kind of study, you know, whatever you need. The first two years of high school should be foundational for civic information and, um, you know, uh, community understanding, whatever the jobs are in that community, you should be centralized learning that. Um, and then understanding civics, like how to make a difference in your community, how the government works, how, you know, representation works, the Republic works, our founding, the basic of American history and world history. Um, after that, in your junior and senior year, I'm thinking you kind of let the students dive into wherever they want to go, um, kind of a plan for either small business training, um, higher education train planning, um, whatever it is that the student seems to be interested in. Um, they can kind of start to be guided at that point. Um, so just off the top of my head, that's my education plan. <laughs> what do you think? No, I, I think it's a, I think there's a lot to that. And I would agree that like, if you don't have a strong foundation in addition and subtraction and multiplication, like you're going to, you're going to struggle in algebra because algebra is just sort of adding another layer on top of that. But if you can't already do the quick algebra, the quick multiplication, the quick division in your mind, um, it just makes it that much difficult when you start adding these like symbols of X's and Y's and Z's and you kind of get lost because you're already thinking like, okay, I got to do this addition, but then I've also got these other variables that I got to keep track of. It just becomes more complicated. I, I agree. Like if we slowed down elementary school and if we said like, we're going to really, when you graduate from second grade and third grade, you're going to have your multiplications and your vision down flat and you'll be able to do it without thinking about it. Then you can keep layering on top of that and then you can start adding simple geometric concepts. And by the time you're in middle school, I think you could have advanced algebra, uh, at least beginning uh, by the time you're out of algebra, I think you uh, out of middle school, you could have advanced um, probably algebra one, algebra two. And I, I remember seeing some like Harvard uh, introductory test from, I don't know, maybe a hundred years ago or something. And the kids were, had to know advanced Latin, um, which, may or may not have its merits now i think i think learning a foreign language helps you learn english better yeah as weird as that sounds like you by breaking down your language to translate to another language you actually become better at your own language like that's what i found learning yeah. spanish learning latin well that's um, what that's how and i think so that, that's how our founders like john quincy adams they like that's how they were trained like they were trained to break to translate different languages in order to better understand theirs so yeah good point no and then i think just like having a real strong foundation in the fundamentals of mathematics, even if you never, you know, like 
I think a lot of kids struggle with mathematics in high school because you didn't have a good foundation in middle school. And then you spend your time thinking, instead of thinking like, maybe I could just kind of like suffer through this geometry, suffer through this pre-calculus. Instead, you're thinking like, why the heck do I need to know this? Because you had a bound foundation in middle school. And I think like, I think if we really focus on the fundamentals at the fundamental ages, I think that would be key. So I I like I like what you're thinking. I think um, there's, a, you know, you could ask more for your students as uh, as high schoolers. Like I'd, um, the, the programming classes I teach, like one of them is a Java class and then the other one is kind of an open-ended programming problem. Um, and I think it's a good, uh, it's a safe environment for children because they don't know what they want to do, but they know they kind of like programming. So they just sort of pick something and then they struggle through it. Either they um, learn a lot more than they thought it was. Like some kids are like, oh, I'm just going to build a game. And then they realize all the work that goes into building a game because it's not just like programming commands. There's a whole fact that we have to do like art direction, assets, there's physics engines, and a lot of tools will do that for you. But it's a lot more complicated than just saying like, well, we're going to build like a, a game where you can walk around and shoot people. Um, yeah. Or uh, cut fruit like in Fruit Ninja and stuff. I don't. I don't think we want kids in the schools creating games where they can walk around and shoot each other. I don't think that's a good. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like shaping behavior, right? Like there's got to be boundaries and morals everywhere, and it's just got to be like basic rules to be like, hey, you want to create video games here? Let's make them happy. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's not true. No, I agree with that, but the, unfortunately, that's the uh, that's all the. That's where the kid, but oh, but yeah. unfortunately, but that. You're right. That's where the kids' mindsets are. I mean, I was in a, I mentioned before, I went to a writing workshop for kids in the schools, middle school age, and this is what the kids are writing about, right? Like, we should be concerned that children want to write about this stuff or want to make video games about this stuff. That is, you know, that's the deeper, you know, issue that we face as a society. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. So, Anyway, um, I think the whole arc I was trying to get along with is, is there's this superintendent search that we're going through. And, um, you know, there's some candidates. I think uh, we'll see how this goes. But one of the interesting dilemmas a school board member has is that do they support a candidate that they may not 100, agree 100% with, but might push the division forward? Or do they end up voting against a candidate that they can't agree with 100%? And I think that that gets to this this article that you're writing that you're going to talk um, talk about the time to build. Like, is being a public service about the performance in terms of saying, like, I can never support this person, even though there's like, you know, only a couple of things I disagree with, because I know my tribe is going to come behind them, and they're not going to agree with them. Is there a merit to saying, like, I don't agree with this person 100%? But I, for the for the better of the institution, I'm going to go along and and vote in favor of putting them in there, because I think in general it will move things forward. Or is there merit to kind of trying to find? Is there a middle ground to that? I guess is uh, would be my my question. So like, how would you parse that in terms of institutions finding the right people for them? Your responsibilities as a as an elected official. I mean, so I, you know, separate it from two. The elected official is kind of handcuffed by the situation. You, you know, you're you're searching for a job. If you're going to put that on like the people electing a leader, maybe the answer is different. But I think for your situation as an elected official with the handcuffs on you, you've got you can't you you can't just pick whatever whoever you want. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, you are the authority. One of what? How many members are the authority on this? Just nine. A nine. Yeah, just nine people, you're responsible for this. So you have to make a decision. You can't just not do anything. Um, so I think you pick the person that moves it forward that as long as you believe they're being genuine and honest, right? Mm -hmm. And honestly, if you don't find somebody that is that way, then you you know, then you do sit on your hands, even as the elected official, because you, we got to stop making that like, oh, well, maybe this guy, you know. I think we all kind of know who the good guys and the bad guys are at this stage of the game. You know, like the one and by and by good guys and bad guys, I mean the ones that are going to be open, honest, and vulnerable with you, and then the ones that are going to distract and mislead you and kind of kind of say what you what they think you want. Yeah. They're going to say what they think you want them to say so that they will get what they want done. Yeah, and, and they're pretty easy to spot. You know, like. <laughs> It's it's like a where's Waldo of used car salesmen, you know, and no offense against used car salesmen. I mean, there's plenty of them. They're very talented, you know, good people. But, you know, it's a bad name for a reason. Right. There's there's always people in the industries that take advantage. And I think that's kind of the image that most people have with politicians nowadays. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they're I mean, just, they're just scripting on the situation, trying to get rich. And... Yeah. And, and 
you know, we talked about, you're talking about education. It's an institution. That's what you, uh, Levin is writing about. He's writing about the the institutions in our society that are kind of, you know, they're kind of failing. The government institution, the media uh, and journalistic institutions, the family structure, the family as an institution. It's, you know, I hate to say that it's failing, but it's definitely like on the downward, right? And mm -hmm. we have to, you know, we got to start electing leaders that understand why these things are failing and start to push, like you said, push the needle in the direction of making real substantial change, you know? So, you know, why is our, why is our institutions failing? A lot of it has to do with communication. Um, you know, I talk about a lot, the house was capped that made the districts large. It's hard to communicate with a, a large number of people. I spoke with somebody on Capitol Hill just recently. They work for a congressperson and they said it's nearly impossible <laughs> to to communicate with the 800,000 people in their their uh district and they have 18 people on staff and they can't keep up. They're working, you know, 5 to 7 days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day and they can't win, right? Because mm -hmm. if you can't have good communication with your constituency you're going to have a lot of people that are upset at you right they're all they like this person just was i just i felt bad for them honestly <laughs> like this person like legitimately wants to do good but it's probably really hard to do good when you can't hear the people talking at you and you can't speak back with them you know and so like we have to have leaders that understand that you know and one of the things that i talk about in my article is uncapping the house right we talk about that here on the podcast a lot um but then you move it forward and you say, okay, like, what about the other concentrations of power? Because Levin, you know, it's a failure of communication, which leads to a concentration of power, right? Because now you've got to be able to create big power structures in order to like disperse your information out to your constituency. Um, and the social media alg algorithms, they work well to connect us, but, you know, maybe they should be focused more locality than anywhere else um, because when you go out and you speak to the town square you want to make sure that you're speaking to your town and not somebody else's town or a hand-picked town you know of people that agree with you um, and so you know change maybe maybe some sort of legislation or just move by the the social media companies on their own to recognize that we need better communication and and Lavelle or Levin uh, you know he talks about these institutions they are more uh, performative now rather than formative. You know, we're we're Congress and uh, the presidency and all of our media journalists. It's just theater for us. You know, the journalists will go on and on on Twitter and TV along with the politicians having these open debates with no real like thinking or studying, saying the top the thing that comes off the top of their head just to get some clicks or, or some attention rather than crafting a coherent thoughtful response, you know, meant to move the needle of society and government in the right direction. So I agree. Like there's a lot of, of um, just people talking past each other, but part of me wonders if it's not necessarily social media per se, but the idea that communication has changed and we haven't changed how we communicate. And I, I think so much back to, I'm, I'm doing my history reread again, and I'm at the, the period, the book starts in 1812, and it goes basically 1814, 1848. And it talks about how the time to communicate, like, you know, it, it talks about the War of 1812, and you've got Custer's, uh, is it Custer's last stand? It's the Battle of, no, I'm sorry, uh, the Battle of New Orleans, uh, Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Jackson, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, that battle happened after the peace treaty was signed. Yeah, but nobody knew. And, but, but nobody knew because of communication. But the fact is, in 30 years, the, the rise of Jacksonian democracy um, the rise of, of the Jacksonian populism, if you will, mm -hmm. communication changed dramatically where it, it became faster and cheaper to communicate with each, with each other because you had better roads, you had a better uh, transportation network, you had a built out transportation network, maybe. Um, and I just wonder if if it's not necessarily per se that that we're all kind of talking past each other because we all really want this wrong, but we're just, it's a different communication environment in terms of it's just online all the time now. And we haven't quite figured out what's the best way to do that. And I would say like, maybe uh, they had the same problems where again, like in 1812, you were literally talking to your town square. 
But as the decades progressed, it wasn't just the town square. It was what someone was writing, what they were telegraphing across the country to someone else. And, you know, the, the infamous, like, taken out of context, like, maybe things are more, things are taken out of context. And that gave rise to a different kind of ire because you could sort of, so you could say, like, can you believe this person said this one sentence? Mm -hmm. And you could give it to a lot more people and communicate, and you could generate a lot more emotion and a lot more vitriol. When in reality, if you listen to the whole 30-minute, 40-minute, one-hour speech, like, there was a lot more nuance to it. But because of the medium of tele the telegraph, like, you lost all that. <clears throat> and so maybe we're in this situation where Twitter is the 100, uh, 280 character plus or minus more if you if you pay for it, or it's a newsletter or something that goes to a discrete list of people. Like maybe we're just in this different communication age as, and that allows for someone who's populist to rise because they know how to communicate. They know how to tap the right people. They know how to use the new mediums in order to get their message out when everyone else is kind of still kind of scrambling in the, I don't know the tw the mid 2010s uh, cable news 24 hour news channel cycle and like what is it, would that comport with it? What are you thinking? Well, so and and I write a, I write about it in the article is you know Jackson he's the first American populist president and you kind of mentioned you know how does this happen? It's better roads. It's a better communication system. What is that system that Jackson uses? The postal service who create mm -hmm. helped create that system Madison right? And so um, Jackson uses the postal service in the in the patronage in the Postal Service, along with the Democratic Party through the antebellum period to kind of manipulate, to, to uh, you know, control the means of communication to ensure victory for their side, right? Um, and, yeah. and they're very successful at it. Um, you fast forward, another populist that I write about is, um, is uh, Teddy Roosevelt, right? How did he, what was his thing? His thing was the bully pulpit, right? He talked directly to the journalist um, and the journalist wrote the stories that he wanted to write, and he was able to communicate because that was the burgeoning communication mechanism of the time. You know, you had Pulitzer, you had, um, oh man, I can't even think of all like, the Again, like a, a different kind of like media landscape, a different kind of communication landscape. A different type of communication landscape. You fast forward, you had FDR. Um, I didn't drop him in the article, but he's another populist leader, right? And he um, he communicated through the the radio, the firesides chats. You fast forward again. You have Donald Trump, right? What was his medium? It was Twitter, you know. Um, and then the one that I I really focus on is Lincoln. And and what was his medium? Is his was debates, right? It was the Lincoln Douglas debates, and he was basically, you know, he's debating with these people, which a large number of people got to hear. Lincoln's thought process on government and what type of leader they thought he would be. And, you know, if you're in that scenario, it's only logical to under to, to or it's only reasonable to think that he's going to talk to a lot of Americans during this time period. So he's going to be shaped by all the stories because you can get a picture of the type of person Lincoln is through, you know, reading his story. And he's definitely the type of person that would sit down and listen to someone. And that's what makes him such an effective leader in such a factious time was his ability to understand the American people. So he was confident in his decision making so he can stand his ground against his factious cabinet and lead them the way that they needed to to kind of bind our union back together um and what does he do he he does what all the other populist leaders do, do which is they speak against an institution right the institution jackson spoke against was the republican you know the 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 aristocracy of the founding right the republican party of the time um the the institution that Teddy Roosevelt spoke against was corporations to a large degree. The you know he spoke for the common man, even though he was came from a wealthy, powerful family. But he walked the streets of New York, you know, as police commissioner and learned about you know people's lives so he could connect and speak with them. Um, and you know, so you you get that understanding of what a populist leader is and who who and how they should be. Um, and Lincoln was. Lincoln was especially skilled in this. And I think that we're, you know, where the other ones spoke against the institutions, you know, he speaks against them 
and created a new one against the Democratic Party, against the slaveholders, but also creating the Republican Party, the new institution. As as Levin is titled, the book is A Time to Build. You know, you don't want a populist revolution. You want a populist reform minute movement where people become engaged with their communities, become engaged with their community, uh, with their government and get out and actually elect better leaders. And those leaders listen and inform and debate in the sphere to make some real change in society. Society. No, it's true. I mean, I think it's so easy to forget how uh, blessed we are, how many benefits we have, how many resources we have, and what advantages we we have just by the nature of being Americans and being, uh, you know, you know, you and I living in Northern Virginia. It's a, it's a great place to live in general, um, and we it's very easy to forget that and to think like, well, oh my gosh, it's so difficult in X, Y, or Z. I mean, you, um, I think. Uh, we have to be careful. We have to be great, and that's a, but one of Cicero's things is uh, you know gratitude for what we have. Because if we're not gra- grateful for what's been given to us, it's very easy to become cynical in order and try to break things down without realizing the the wider spread implications of, of something like that. So um, I think I think that's that's a good point to make. It's not a it's not a populist revolution. It's a populist reform, and a reform means taking what we have and and putting it in the right position, you know, like you're, uh, I've got a, a lawnmower that needs a new crankshaft right now. And so you turn it on and it vibrates and it's, you know, you could cut the lawn if you really needed to, but it would, it would ruin your hands probably. Mm-hmm. Knock your, knock your joints out of the chair. But you, know, like, you could disassemble the lawnmower and all you got to do is replace that one part, that crankshaft. And it's an expensive part. It's a hundred bucks. Um, but then you could put it all back together and you can have a lawnmower that's going to cut your grass and it's going to, keep your hands uh, from from vibrating to death. Like, I think that that's the part of reform and, and not revolution. Revolution would be, let's take that lawnmower, let's throw in the dump and we'll build something, some new contraption to cut the grass from scratch. And we're going to make a lot of mistakes in, in the process because we have forgotten everything that we came, that came before us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you talked about being grateful. Um, you know, I read that book while I was in DC a few weeks ago, and I read it sitting in front of the Capitol. And on my drive from the Capitol, um, the Uber driver, I just, you know, I talk to everybody, I ask him questions, I just find people's stories fascinating. And he was telling me, you know, he moved from Ghana in the 80s, he he was granted uh, amnesty from Reagan. And he said to me, he said, people from all over the world want to come to America for the opportunity. And then, you know, throughout the course of our conversation, he he was he said, you know, basically to all of its faults, it's still quote the best place to live, you know, and duh, right? And it's like this guy that's you know he lives in Alexandria, he drives an Uber in Washington D.C. Uh, he's an immigrant from Ghana who you know got you know good circumstances to get over here, then was granted amnesty, so he gets to live here forever. Like he loves this country. He appreciates the country. He, you know, asking him questions about basic government questions compared to like most people, like, you know, what type of government structure are we? We're a republic. You know, what is a, a representative democracy? Like he understands this stuff because it's important to him because there are other places in the world where you don't get that representation, where you don't have that divided power. So people that, you know, don't have it really, of course, appreciate it more than those who do. And and I would say no matter how hard you work, you're not going to get anything. You know, it's just like it's shut from you. Whereas here, sometimes you have to work twice as hard to get half as what someone else does, but you still have an opportunity to get more. And I think that's, uh, you know, it's it's unequal in one effect, but it is opportunity to another effect. I mean, I think that I think this this whole idea of equality is really difficult to achieve in society. And and mm-hmm. I think what we should really s- strive for is equal opportunity, right? By building good institutions for people to work through, like a good education system that focuses on fundamental, you know, the fundamentals of, you know, communication and reading and arithmetic, so that when, and critical thinking, um, so students can kind of become whoever they want and they can go out and they can create, you know, businesses and, and institutions for themselves and grow the economy and grow our society as opposed to tearing them all down, saying they're evil and the other guy's awful and dividing us against each other. No, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's um, it's one thing to try to have the equal opportunities where everyone graduates, but it's another thing to say like, well, maybe we should have the best fundamentals and the best foundation and let kids 
grow to their maximum potential and allow someone to fail. And I would say like you, you can learn through failing. I mean, like I got fired from a job in high school and I learned a lot through that. So, um, but, but speaking of growth, Jeff, I, I heard you're, uh, you've got a, you know, I, I don't hear you have a business. I know you have a business and I've heard um, you're in the midst of this transition. Like, you know, so much of the economy is with the rising interest rates and interesting uh, economic challenges. Like what are you, how are you trying to change your business in order to take, take advantage or to, um, to uh, put yourself in a safe harbor during these interesting times? Well, I mean, I'm not really doing anything safe, to be honest with you. I'm taking a big risk, uh, you know, and it's strategic. Um, and I've been working on it for about a year. And, you know, you look at the economic landscape and, and John, what would you say the thing that has the most control over the candidate is? Uh, the party and, and, uh, and, oh, and money, maybe if you. And, and who, who, who runs the money for the candidate? Like, Who's the person that you hire to run your campaign? Oh, your consultant. Your consultant. And they have a lot of say over where the money gets spent. And mm -hmm. I, I read an article recently, like Axiom is one of the biggest uh, political uh, consulting firms. And they capture just a ridiculous amount of fundraising dollars that goes through their business um, outside of the counties and districts that are ra it's raised in. Um, and you find... Uh, you find that the political consultants at the grass at the local level are, you know, maybe not, they don't understand the community they're working for. So it makes it difficult to spend the money effectively. Let's put it that way. Uh, right. Maybe they don't have the basis of design, you know, of communication, you know, like we talked about and Levin talks about communication is a big problem. Um, so I understood this from from a from a distance when I got into politics. You know, everybody kind of warned me about the consultants. I understood the fundraising apparatus and the way that money was funneled, and I kind of understood that I sat on a business that was a medium for that. It was a, a means of communication for candidates. They would use uh, t-shirt printing apparel to fundraise and make money off of, and then. There's another aspect of printing, and that's like mailers, door hangers. That's your grassroots activism. That's how you get out there and like get the vote out. And and you know a lot of the fundraising dollars are spent through there. But again, they're spent outside of the community. And what do these mailers say most of the time? They don't really say much of anything. And neither does the candidate. You know, because the candidate is, I you know I think the consultants make them scared to say anything. I mean, you've talked about oh, absolutely, it. yeah, absolutely. You, you don't want to say anything negative about anyone. You just want to be as positive as possible because, you know, uh, you know, heaven forbid you say something that makes someone upset and then they come after you and then you got to all the damage control around that. So the the incentive for everyone is to not say anything, not take really take a stand on anything and then just kind of hope that you can kind of skate by and, you know, maybe your base will turn out and that'll be good enough for you. Yeah. And so I've been focusing my co company, shifting it away from you know, strictly custom apparel and printing to more of a branding and marketing company. This helps me in a couple of different ways. One, um, our business structure previously was that of a contract printing nature, where we took in a lot of jobs where we didn't make money off of the material. Um, we made a only a percentage of what we would typically make on the printing on a compared to a retail job. And it required a lot of labor, which is difficult to find in this labor shortage market. Um, so I had to refocus my business more in community, which I wanted to do anyways with my new understanding of you know life through reading of government and stuff like that. Um, kind of understanding where my values are as far as faith, family, and community. And um, this takes time to 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 build anew right to reform to adjust your business it takes retraining of employees it takes um, extra staff it takes different types of sales techniques and one of the things that i built was a, what i call as a design guide and it's a step it's a five-step process where we take our customers whether they be like a school or organization a small business and we help them figure out what's their message and who's their audience and then we help them you know, take that idea, that message and frame and size it for whatever it's going on, a hat, a t-shirt or whatever. And then we help them set the tone, you know, the colors, you know, the aggressiveness, the passiveness, whatever it is that they're trying to communicate, making sure it lands with the audience they're trying to communicate with. Um, this is how, you know, we help our community and basically giving this consulting 
services away. They, we get to help them build ideas to generate revenue for their business, help them focus in on what they're good at and target that market. And then, you know, we also want to take that design guide and turn it into a communication guide and start to get, do political consulting on top of it. You know, um, part of what I'm working on right now is I'm trying to find a partner to do a to merge in with me and be a printing partner so I could offer the mailers, all those other fundraising things that they need. Um, I could sit down with a candidate and build a campaign strategy. Um, I don't think there's many people in the state of Virginia that have read as much political election history as me. Um, <laughs> probably none. Probably. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to take that bet. Um, and I've studied our local elections from up close for the last two years. So I feel very prepared to be able to do this. Um, what I, you know, it's it's been a challenge, right? This has been a goal. Like, in all honesty, I didn't want to become this business where I used my political ability to make money. That was not my goal. In fact, my goal was to never have to do this. I thought I can inspire my community to volunteer only. I wouldn't have to make money. And um, that's how I would make change. But you know, to be honest with you, that hasn't worked as well as I had wanted to work. And I would still do it if I could afford to. But at the stage of the game that I'm in, I have to make this transition with my business at this stage because it's just not going to work otherwise. Um, and I need to be able to, to maintain my focus in all of my missions, both serving my community in a small way and a large way. Because some people, you know, we just need some people to be focused on that. And so... My goal right now is to find a printing partner, merge businesses, and to raise, you know, fifty to one hundred thousand dollars of capital to to make this happen. I already have uh, meetings scheduled with campaign with candidates that are running for office that I have written campaign strategies for specific to their district that I'm hoping to sign on as clients. Um, you know, that means that you know I've written fundraising plans for them as well, so they can help uh, to help you know, fund their campaign, which, you know, when all honesty would get spent through my business, but you would get my design expertise, you'd get my political expertise, you'd get my communication expertise. And the goal would be to help candidates speak their message to the audience they're trying to reach, cut through, lower the cost of running for office for, you know, average citizens, and to make some noise in the political realm that you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat to make, you know, make change. You can be anything and it, or, or you don't have to be beholden to the party or the consultant because, you know, you, these could be Republicans or Democrats running for office that we could help. You know, my basis questions that I would ask people is, if they want to work with me is, do, can you explain to me what, you know, our Republican structure is or how it mm -hmm. works? You know, do you understand how our representation works? Um, and then if, if the answer is no, or if you can't explain it to you, are you willing to let me teach it to you? You know, cause I think that that is like the basis of understanding that you need. Basically what I'd ask from a client that came and worked for us is I'll give you all of my expertise. You let me spend your fundraising dollars. I'll help you fundraise. And you let me teach you the Republic representation and sphere of power, right? Along with this design guide. So this is a big thing, right? And like I said, it's, you know, it's not necessarily changing to fit survival. It's changing to make change. It's, it's a risk. I'm not a risk taker by nature. I never have been in my life. I like to play things safe. Um, I feel like I've put in so much work um, to make sure that this happened. I read, you know, I read a lot of business books too, right? So you got Carnegie, you got Vanderbilt, you got Ford, you got Elon Musk. And what a lot of those guys have in common is they burn money, you know, in the first investments. And I have too, in a small degree in my business, I had a certain amount of capital, both personally and in the business that I was willing to spend. So I wasn't burning an investor's money. That way, whenever I come up now and I say, hey, look, you know, depending, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm going to go to family first. I don't really want to bring in outside investors, but if I go say, hey, mom and dad, I need to, I need you to invest in this business. Here's how it's going to be successful. Here's what I'm going to get done. And just so you know, I've already made the mistakes. <laughs> I've already <laughs> learned from those. I've already burned that money. You know, I, there will be more in the future. That's inevitable when you do something large like this, but I feel confident that they'll be minimized and I'll be able to spend that money effectively. 
It almost sounds like you're building the uh, the anti-pack where instead of being the big dollars outside the candidate, you're you're helping the candidate use small dollars in order to get the same message out there and to to own the message. I mean, like the problem with PACs is that it's not, it is by law not coordinated usually with the candidate. Um, I guess it's unless it's like a Virginia PAC, but it's just, you know, it's someone else's voice trying to masquerade as, as the candidate's voice. And that's just that's a fraud at the mm-hmm. very at the end of the day. Like, you know, own your message. Yep. Uh, and that's one of the things I appreciate about some of the FEC rules is that if you have a video ad, you're supposed to have at the end of it like this. I'm so and so, and this is my I'm, I'm John Beatty, and I approve this message. Like every ad that has that, that's a by law. The candidate has to put that on there because they have to stand by their messaging. And if it's just some nameless pack that someone else threw a billion dollars into, or maybe only a, a a meager million dollars like that is trying to speak for someone in a fraudulent way because it really isn't the candidate at the end of the day it's someone maybe they might think they know what the candidate wants they may think that they can kind of like speak around what the candidate wants they can attack someone that the candidate wouldn't go be willing to go out and attack for but it's just it's a fraud yeah i mean and that would be, you know, that would be the campaign strategy. I would build a campaign strategy for candidates that centers around communication, you know, centers around like, hey, let's let's set a day of the week where we just meet with people. People register online. They set up a, a one hour meeting and the first 30 minutes, the, the citizen leads the conversation and the second 30 minutes, the candidate leads the conversation. And then at the end, you know, the candidate asks for a donation. You say like, hey, did you appreciate the time that I gave you? Do you think there's value in somebody like me being in office? And if you can, you know, ask for donations like in, you know, the basic increments of of life equivalency. So like, you know, your first donation level is $10, three gallons of milk. You know, can you do, can you do three gallons of milk for me? You know, your second one is, is maybe it's a tank of gas it's 80 bucks the third one's is three, three gallons of milk is about like 50 bucks now so <laughs> you know so like three gallons of milk a tank of gas a dinner out mm-hmm. with the family a night out at the ball game you know all these different increments a semester of college you know so you've got you know eighty dollars 150 dollars five hundred dollars ten thousand dollars right or a thousand dollars whatever it may be mm-hmm. and you're yeah. able to raise this money on this communication level you record these Record this, record the conversations with the citizens, put it on a podcast. We talked about, you know, how do you make a populist movement work? You communicate with the people, you make sure that they're, you're listening to them and you, they hear you and you use the new fee- form of communication. And like the Lincoln, if you want a populist reform movement, you need more of a long form communication as opposed to a short form communication. So like Twitter is a short form communication. That's a good for like organizing and whatnot. But like if you really want to have debate and conversation and understand each other, which is what we need right now, you want to have a long form com- uh, conversation. So you you set a goal. You say, OK, we got 24 weeks to the election. We're going to try to meet with one-hour meetings with 200 citizens in our district. We're going to ask those citizens to then share that podcast that we record with at least 10 of their friends inside the district. Now you have a reach of 2,000. And then you say, okay, of the 2,000 people that that you know listen, can we get an average donation of about $150? If you can get an average donation of about $150, you've now raised about $300,000. You do this in a small enough HOD or Senate House Senate race, that's enough money to make a difference. Whether you're a yeah. third-party candidate, whether you're, uh, you know, an outsiding uh, in a purple district, maybe you're on the opposite side of where the purple leans, you know, Democratic or Republican, that's the needle that you need to move it. And you do so by standing on principle, saying, look, my job is to communicate with you, and I'm going to fundraise and do my job at the same time. Well, it doesn't have to necessarily be 250000 to move the needle. Like, I feel like of that 250000 that traditionally would get raised, it was probably misspent anyway, because again, it goes through major consultants and the army of door knockers and people just taking their own cuts of it. Like I yes. bet if you raised again, like I think we talked about this at the Madison Republicans meeting, uh, the most recent one, you know, if you raised $50,000, maybe a hundred thousand dollars and you spent it wisely, you could do a whole lot more than blowing through a million bucks on the wrong kind of targeting, the wrong kind of communication, because the the correct spending would be communicating to people that may not know about you rather whereas a lot of communication is to people 
that you've already convinced that have no need to be convinced that there's no need to spend the money on them. Well, and that's the things because the way that the the corporate consulting structure works, right? Since they don't know the communities, they just know who votes in the communities. So they just target yeah. those people and their goal is to just drive more of those people out than the other guy does. They're not actually engaging their community. This this you know, having a community consultant, somebody who actually lives in your community, the you know, has relationships with small businesses in your community. This is how it happens. I mean, I have been working on the ground and you know what consultants want from me, the volunteer, they want me to tell them what church to send their candidate to. They want me to connect them with small businesses to get deals or open up opportunities to have speaking engagements. They want me, the citizen, to do all of this stuff. They don't want to pay me for it. They don't want to listen mm -hmm. to my ideas, but they want to take it from me and they don't want to represent me. They don't want to listen to me. And when I say me, I'm just the guy trying to be heard. I'm one out of, you know, in the district of 10, you know, district 10, one out of almost 756,000 who is, you know, just wants his voice heard as a citizen. What if it was you? What if you had something that you wanted to, you see how hard I'm working or you hear how hard I'm working to be heard, to have my ideas be taken seriously. All the foundational work that I've put in to, to get our leaders to get serious about what the real problem in our country is. Do you think they're going to listen to you? Have you put that work in? Do you want to have to put that much work in to get your voice heard as a citizen? Should you have to put that much work in as a citizen to get your voice heard? And my pitch is support your community. Help, you know, help find me somebody that wants to invest in this company. You know, help me build out the infrastructure. Go find your candidates running for office and say, hey, Drop your corporate consultant and hire someone local. Hire somebody that's lived here his entire life, who has a small business here, who has his family here, who works inside the community. His church is here. His schools are here. Somebody that actually wants to make some change as opposed to sending that money to Washington, D.C., to the swamp, right? Like we're on the Republican side. We just had a big right. populist movement. The swamp, ladies and gentlemen, is the consultants. Like that's the swamp. That's the corporate like money pit that sucks everything up and it funnels the message in this blender and it comes out nothing. They've killed the communication because they don't want communication. They want profit. It's true. No, I, I completely agree. Like if we can find... Better consultants, I think that would help, uh, you know, and and better candidates and better candidates and consultants working together. That'd be good. So, uh, so Jeff, I don't know if you know about this, but our podcast is called Politics and Parenting. And uh, oh, yeah, it is. We've been we've been we've been lacking in the parenting uh, segments in the past couple of weeks. So, uh, you you dutifully informed me you've got something to talk about that's parenting related. I do. So I have a, this great story. Um, so one of the things that we opened up with, you talk about education and we talked, we had all the education discussion. It was fantastic. And um, education is an institution in this country that I would argue is kind of failing. Um, but locally, I feel really good about my local elementary school. And um, there's this program in, in ours that has, they have a drama program. This was created at another elementary school in the area. And then it caught on here at uh, where my children go to school. And they did a- wait wait, 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 wait. That was a sort of a grassroots, like one school tried something and another school saw that it was successful and they copied it? They, yes, did you say they, they plagiarized did. it? They plagiarized it? Yes, they did. And it's been, it's working out fantastic. The school put on a production of Willy Wonka this weekend. And so like drama is a way to engage kids in reading, a way to engage kids in speaking. It helps them understand their emotions, express themselves. Drama is a fantastic resource to teach kids. And so they put on Willy Wonka. I took my family there and I was blown away by this production. I mean, these kids, that you could have recorded it and put it on TV and you would have been impressed. Like they knew their lines, they sung them well. And as a parent, my daughters, my twin daughters have been asking to go for this for months. They, you know, the moment that the advertisements went out to school, they wanted to go. The day that the tickets came home, they had these big smiles on their faces and just so excited. Well, the day comes and the first, we're getting ready to leave. And the first thing Sadie does is throw a timber tantrum. Right. So now, you know, you're excited, you know, got this big thing. And this has been a routine that Sadie has pulled specifically with her mother and is now transitioned to everybody else in the house where she just makes a big stink about getting her shoes on. I can't figure out why she does this. It doesn't matter where we're going. 
It's just a thing that she does. She does it every morning in the in the um, before school. And I've been trying to help my wife out and like, you know, get her under control. So it was a challenge getting out the door, right? You get this as a family, you work hard. My wife works hard. I work hard. You're tired. You really don't want to do this thing, you know, because you it's the end of the week. It's Friday. It's seven o'clock at night. And then it's like, come on, you've been asking for this. And now they're throwing a temper tantrum. So it takes an extreme amount of patience as a parent to make it through, yeah. the, through this moment. So we go to the school and through the excitement in the, I think the third scene of the play, Eleanor takes my flannel, covers herself up and falls asleep. Now, Sadie's yawning. They're bedtime 7.30. So we're like, okay, that's cool. She's just tired. We'll let her sleep. It's such a shame. We paid for these tickets. She was so excited, but she just couldn't make it through. It's definitely not because the play isn't entertaining because the play was absolutely entertaining. Um, but we figure she's just tired. Vanessa ends up picking her up. She's holding her. We go through inter intermission and the whole play, about an hour later, we're in the last scene of the play. Eleanor throws up everywhere everywhere in the middle of the auditorium the place is packed right like do you want to see like what is your school doing for you your what is drama doing besides teaching all those kids how to you know how to better read how to better express themselves and communicate it's bringing it's, people together it's bringing people together and they all get to witness my daughter <laughs> throw up everywhere in the back it's, of the it's bringing people apart I think, right <laughs> So we like, we pull Eleanor out, like we wipe, we, we just like, as a family, Oliver, Julia, like we're all like getting this cleaned up. You know, my wife's got Eleanor in the bathroom trying to clean it out of her hair. My, I had to take my flannel home and wash Oof. it at Noakesville day the next day. Um, but it just shows you like the experience as a parent pays off, right? Because I can tell you, I would not have been so cool and calm and we would not have uh, clean that up as well as a family 10 years ago, you know, like when the mm -hmm. when the older kids were that age, because it was always just a, never been prepared. And, you know, there was a little part of me that said, maybe she's not feeling well when she fell asleep. And, and, you know, that's the, that's the part of the parents, like, do you stick with your intuition and potentially ruin a good time for your other kid? Right. Cause I don't want to leave and Sadie missed the show, you know? So like, you're trying to balance like your intuition versus the facts, which Eleanor never told us she was not feeling well. And our kids are pretty good at expressing themselves when they don't feel well. So we figure we trust them, you know, <laughs> well, maybe she just fell asleep before she got the opportunity. <laughs> no, that's uh, I hate cleaning up public vomit. I'm in a, um... Remember this one time one of our children had a massive diaper explosion in the back of the car. We had to like pull over at a local uh, restaurant and go to the bathroom and clean them out. And it was just, uh, it's, but it's, you know, the first time you do it, you're kind of like, what the heck is going on? And the second time or third time, you're just like, yeah, I got this. Like there's, uh, I think that it's one of the joys of parenting is that it doesn't, uh, you go through enough of experiences, it doesn't phase you. Um, and, you know, there's not much that, uh, surprises you anymore and uh you know cleaning up vomit whether it's in the your children's room or the local auditorium it's just it's the same you know it just you yeah. need a bunch of wipes and you need some cleaning solution and uh the the fortitude to clean up the chunks and put them in a bag as quickly as possible because <laughs> yeah well it was uh other than that the play was fantastic and and i just I cannot stress how fan, you know impressed I am with the elementary school leadership, you know, for you know having the program number one, understanding the value, um, and then the you know we talk about communication. That's good communication to pack that house. They did a show mm -hmm. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and they packed the house every single night. I wasn't there every night, but I talked to you know some other parents, and they said that the house was packed every night too. And that is, I mean, that's a testament to local leadership leading their community you know and one of the big things i talk about is we just need more of that in all yeah. facets whether it's local leadership in a youth organ sports organization or inside of a elementary middle or high school you know 
at a church, whatever it is, we just need more volunteers out there, more people working with children, more people leading their community in a business aspect, in a organizational or charity aspect. We just need more of it. And I'm uh, I'm proud or happy to say that I I live next to an area that is doing that well, and uh, it's important. So, yeah, it's about the the right opportunities too. Because I'm I mean, like our school has a play every year, and I haven't been able to make it just because we live far away, and it it just I support the arts. I'm I'm glad the kids have an opportunity there, but it hasn't it hasn't really worked out. I guess I think my son did it one year uh, during the pan during the pandemic when I guess less is going on and <laughs> the family schedule. But like it, you know, if it's not the arts, if it's some other opportunity that you can engage parents with and you can again bring the community together. Like uh, we we do a good job with the ice cream social at the beginning of the year. That's an opportunity for new families, old families to all kind of mingle before everything uh, hits the road. Um, for the rubber meets the road is the right metaphor and you know i think that's that's the part is the the local administration the local leadership has to listen to their constituents the parents and say if there is demand for this kind of thing let, let's try it out and in your case your elementary school they found the demand because it was a successful program in elementary school they tried it out it sounds like it's a success hopefully they'll continue doing it and they didn't need some top-down direction to say, oh, you should really, you really got to do this no matter what. It was sort of a, what works for our school, what works for our parents, and let's make the most of it. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's the basis of uh, governing, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. leading your little circle, you know, <laughs> it's important. <laughs> so, well, John, that was a good episode. What do you think? It was great. I'm looking forward to editing it and I'll listen to it and <laughs> I invite everyone else who's listening to it to also listen to it. Yeah. So um, for those of you who are keeping track of the articles we mentioned today, if you want to check them out, um, there's the article, A Time to Build, A Populist Reform Movement. Um, that should be coming out on Monday. This pod will probably come out on Tuesday, so it's probably already out. So go click on it and read it. Um, the other one that we we kind of talked about that, you know, talks about my difficulties of, you know, my ups and downs through this journey and and my you know, continuing on to that parental family structure and how the institution that's so important is holding on by a thread where I talk about, you know, um, difficulty and then my mom and how, uh, how she's always able to bring me up and encourage me and keep me going when things get tough. So uh, check that out and read it as well. Uh, we've got some events coming up uh, July, uh, June 5th. It's June 5th, right, John? We've got a... Um, a dinner we're putting on. Um, it's going to be at Taste of Old Country in Manassas. It's going to be a small little get together. If you're out there and you want to go, this is an opportunity for you to sit down with, you can bring as many friends as you want, uh, you know, up to the guest list, put together like just a friendly night out um, and sit down and talk to us about what's going on in your world. You know, like, what do you want to see done in your community? You know, what do you really expect government to do? And then ask us questions, you know, talk to us. Um, I don't know how many Madisonians will be there, but I will be there at least. Um, and then we have our next big event. We put a put a pause on our last one because we were trying to like gear up for one big kind of celebratory event after teaching the, the three main classes. And that is July 8th. It's going to be a Saturday at Great Maine Brewery. Um, we're gonna, it's, you know, think of it uh, as civic information, community information. Um, we're gonna have some food out there for people to go. Uh, we're gonna have local businesses come out there to inform about what's going on in the community, what you can do to be involved. Um, we're hoping to have a microphone and camera to record conversations with people that want to talk about things that are important to them in the community. We're gonna have our, you know, we'll have information about the Madisonian Republicans, um, our class materials, uh, sign-ups to volunteer and help, and, uh, you know, maybe some other surprises. We're still in the works of planning it. We'll un uh, unveil more. Um, we got to get the website back up. That's on me, John. I will do that. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's not the platform. It's just the uh, the domain registrar. But yeah, yeah. As the, IT, as the IT director of this podcast, you know these things are complicated. Yeah. So the the, the uh, my credit card expired, and they had they didn't send me a new one. So I had to like reach out to get a new credit card to change it over because I just have it on auto pay. So like it just that's what happened. I didn't even realize it first. So. Um, yeah. So that will hopefully be up soon, and then. Um, you know, um, 
I think that's I think that's all we got going on right now, right, John? Um, you should go back if you haven't listened. Listen to the podcast with Ian. That was fantastic. Um, he was a great guest. And um, I've oh, uh, I'll pitch one more thing. Thank you for sharing. I interviewed Craig. Um, our oh, those are great. Uh, yeah, great episodes. Got to listen to those. Different podcasts. We'll put the link in. Yes. Uh, yeah. So listen out to the thank you for sharing, especially if you're inside the community, you want to understand like what are, you know, if you're a politician who listens to my, if you're a local politician, a work in local politics, and you listen to my podcast, understand that the people that you talk to is a very small group. There's a very large mm-hmm. group of people out there who will talk to me, who won't talk to you, and I'll interview them on my podcast. And you can understand what do regular people think, right? Like, what are the people outside of the institutions? What is a real outsider, you know, as opposed to an insider? And you can read more about that in the Time to Build article. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. Craig was Craig's one of my favorite people to talk to. And I like, he he posted on Twitter, it was like, it was felt like five minutes, but it was an hour. And it's true, it did feel like five minutes. He's just, a, it's a, he's a great conversationalist. So you got to check it out. Jeff, what about our anniversary? How could you, how dare you? Do you know what today is? Today's May 21st. Where were you last one year ago on May 21st? Was this election day in the primary last year? This is the primary last year, yes. Oh, man. Man, so when did we start the Madisonian Republicans? uh, I think it was a month. Well, I mean, it was kind of, I think the idea was before the election, but it kind of crystallized maybe a month afterwards. I think think it was maybe end of June when we did the first meeting. Yeah, that sounds about right. I remember the first I came, the idea came and I asked you at the Unity Read forum, I said, hey, would you call yourself a Madisonian Republican? And I said that mm-hmm. to you like right before you went on stage and you were like, yes. And then you did it. And I was like, oh yeah, I got one person, right? Because that's how you start a group, right? You get one person to come along with you first before more people will start to come along with you. <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, happy, happy anniversary. anniversary. At least, at least I remembered. Okay. I, I still haven't got you your Christmas gift. I got a, I got a, Sorry. I got a book wrapped in my room. It's, yeah. it's wrapped in flannel too. So maybe I'll give you that as, as your anniversary gift next time we see each other. You, you know where I live. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, that, that was a great show. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Remember, you can subscribe, like, share. Um, and you know, speak your voice, peace and love.